Hey everybody, welcome to a new week of the course. It's week five, and that takes us to day 46 on the self-quarantine count-up, heading towards 50 days, which will be this Friday. Uh, anyway, it's week five of the term, which means at the end of this week we're gonna be halfway through the term. Uh, it seems to be going quickly to me already. Uh, I don't know if time is going quickly or dragging for all y'all, but for me, time is very erratic, but I know that in terms of Spring term time, that's just rushing ahead. So definitely at this point, I'm not sure how everybody's kind of settling into the relationship to their schedule and their schoolwork, but this is a really good week to sort of take stock, make sure that you're not too far behind, look at what deadlines are coming up, and uh, plan, out, uh, plan out the next five, six weeks of, of your life uh, in terms of the schoolwork. <clears throat> So this week represents a pivot in the class, away from part one, where we were looking at the liberal family of ideas, and now into liberalism's critics. Uh, and we're gonna do some surveying, uh, or not some survey, we're gonna do a, a pretty big uh, survey, not of all the critics, but of the, you know, pretty, what I would consider to be the major ones, the ones that uh, are the, of the most interest uh, to me, and to, I would say, to the nature of this course. Um, Today's class is kind of the pivot point where instead of looking at a specific critic of liberalism, I'm going to uh, you know, basically look at, well, what is it that liberalism is doing and why is it problematic and what are the competing values uh, that, that compete with liberty? That's the title of the lecture today. The reading for today, uh, Liberalism and Its Discontents, is really more about liberalism than it is about the discontents. Uh, it's not a survey so much of the critics or those who are discontented with liberalism as it's a, a construction of what liberalism is and why it's potentially problematic uh, and what, for this particular author, what some of the source of discomfort with liberalism is, even though liberalism is taken as kind of the dominant ideology, the dominant political perspective. I don't want to call ideology a little bit narrow uh, of a term, I think, um, but the, the, it is the dominant political perspective in the world and this author is taking it not as a long-term given, he clearly imagines a world in which liberalism is no longer the dominant uh, uh, form of our political discourse, but uh, he sees it as sort of you know, dominant in the moment and producing discontent for certain reasons. And so mostly the article, if you haven't read it yet, but mostly the article is a, is a construction of what, what I've called the liberal family of ideas is. And you'll notice as you read this some points of connection and some points of disagreement in how the author portrays what liberalism is and how I've portrayed what liberalism is. And uh, that is intentional uh, because I want to make sure that you get as many different perspectives as you possibly can. I know that you're getting the dominant perspective is coming from me and through my uh, lectures and the way that I have constructed my understanding of what the liberal family of ideas is. Um, so this is really just one alternative. There are a variety of ways of looking at uh, what liberalism as a whole kind of political perspective is, and they vary quite a bit because, as in my construction of it, it's a family of ideas. It's not a singular political perspective. It's definitely not a, 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 a cohesive, coherent uh, political ideology that has a set of points that we could list out as being the exact nature of what liberalism is. So uh, definitely invite you as you read this, or if you've already read it, as you think about it, to say, okay, yeah, you know, this is not the same view of liberalism that Jack has given us. Um, the thing that I agree with about liberalism, and there's a lot of things I agree with, obviously, but the thing that I, that I uh, mostly agree with, and the reason why I think this particular article is, is very good, is 
because of what the author refers to as the pure normative standpoint. The, I do consider this to be both a central feature of liberalism at, in, in all of its various incarnations, um, as well as a problematic feature of liberalism. And uh, first of all, what is a pure normative standpoint? A pure normative standpoint is essentially a fixed point in the moral or ethical or political universe that allows us to say, this is something that is fixed and we're going to orient and organize all of our thinking about the political, the social, the individual world around that fixed point. Um, and <clears throat> the uh, fixed point for liberalism is liberty, right? So the pure normative standpoint is that liberty is the primary value. That's the pure normative standpoint uh, of liberalism. And it is really, in a way, it's essential to the entire liberal project. Whatever version of it an author uh, is representing and whatever corner of the family uh, tree it's coming from, there is this shared presumption that individual sovereignty, and that's the term I've been using most frequently to, uh, as a synonym, I think as a more evocative synonym than the word liberty, individual sovereignty, the right of the individual to rule their own life, to set the rules for their own life, to uh, set the very terms of their own life, the conception of the good that they're going to pursue and then the rules that they're going to adopt and the actions and behaviors that are going to follow from that that are going to move towards that conception of the good and also just the idea that you can reconceive your conception of the good. That's part of what it means to be uh, individually sovereign is to form and reform your conception of the good and to choose actions uh, that move you towards that and to evaluate whether you're moving towards it or away from it and also to evaluate whether you want to be moving towards that particular conception of the good uh, or want to actually shift your orientation to move towards a different conception of the good. That, that kind of, that's what liberty is to me. That's, uh, and I think individual sovereignty is, again, a more evocative term. But that is the primary value and there's the shared presumption among liberal thinkers that that is the value that should be elevated above all others. There's not a claim that it's the only political value or that it's the only thing that's valuable to society or to individuals or abstractly. Uh, it is a claim that when there are conflicts, and there often are going to be conflicts between different values, that liberty has to come first. And it's also a claim that we start there. It's a starting point. We start from the point of view of the sovereign individual and take that as the essentially the given both true and good thing, right? Uh, it's true because it expresses the nature of the human condition, right? We are separate from each other. We have these rational capacities which do need to be cultivated, but which are, uh, there's an innate potential within us to have them. And it's good because uh, those are the features of our human nature that, that are the most valuable and that should be cultivated and that should be put center place and should be taken into account. When, for example, we ask the question of like, what should government be like? We have to start with the question of, well, individuals have to consent to that for it to be legitimate. So whatever government's going to be like, legitimacy from the point of view of the rational individual is our starting point. And so that puts a certain kind of philosophical pathways uh, right in front of uh, any kind of thinker when you start there, when that's your starting point. So liberty, the sovereign individual, is both the primary value when there are conflicts and it's the starting point from which we begin 
uh, our thinking. And it's, it should be pretty clear, and we'll see this throughout the rest of this course, that when you start in a different place, even if you put liberty high at the top of, uh, high, high in the list of priorities, um, when you start with a different place, you're going to end up with very different styles of political thought. You're going to end up with, with different conceptions of what the individual is and how the individual relates to society. Obviously, if you start with society first, if you say society is an organic outgrowth of uh, the historical forces and cultural developments, then you're going to get a different, you're going to even just your first move is going to be different than when you start with the sovereign individual. Because you're going to ask a different question. You know, if you start with the sovereign individual and then you're, you're looking towards creating a political uh, philosophy, you, you, you kind of, it's, it's ridiculous to not start with the question of, well, is the political system even legitimate in the first place, right? If we're going to move towards this thing, how can it, how can we, how can it be seen as legitimate? If you're starting with a sort of organic philosophy that society is this organic outgrowth of history and cultural developments, and that human beings are fundamentally social beings whose individuality develops only in this broader social context, then we're going to ask a different question. We're not going to start with, how is the government legitimate? The, where the question is, what should the political system be like to align society and the individual? Uh, and you may end up with a similar set of institutions and procedures and, and roles and constraints, but you probably won't. Um, and uh, what you are definitely going to be doing is telling a different kind of story. So the uh, pure normative standpoint from, that liberals all share is that liberty is the primary value and the starting point for all political thinking. Now, liberals rely on this presumption, and at the same time, and this is where we might even call it a paradox, or it's definitely at least ironic, um, and I think that uh, the author today uh, would indicate that it creates a sense of discontent, is that at the same time that liberals rely on this pure and order standpoint, they also reject the notion that there is a pure normative standpoint. They reject the idea that there is a correct conception of the good. It's fundamental to individual sovereignty that the individual have the ability to use the rational capacities that I refer to as expressive or philosophical rationality. There really is no best good term for it. Uh, but that in, it, a, a part of individual sovereignty is uh, forming your own conception of the good, not discovering the truth of the universe so that you can orient yourself towards the correct way of life, not seeking a pure normative standpoint, for, uh, to orient yourself around, and then using your individual, uh, excuse me, your instrumental rationality, which is the other side of our rational capacity, our ability to uh, determine cause and effect, to analyze the uh, pros and cons, all of the stuff I've talked about numerous times. Uh, if there's a pure normative standpoint, there's going to be a conception of the good that exists and lingers inside of that, and our rational capacity is to, uh, to try to figure out what that is, and then to use our instrumental rationality to move in that particular direction. But uh, liberalism rejects the notion that there is a singular conception of the good. And in fact, a, a really big part of what it means to prioritize liberty and to uh, use uh, liberty as a, as a starting point is to 
reject the idea that for all human beings there is a singular conception of the good. Uh, now, this is a rejection of various kinds of earlier philosophical thinking, um, particularly among, uh, I would say it's, it's most clear among the ancient Greeks, who we don't study in this class, um, but among the Greeks, there, uh, there is a conception of the good that is uh, out there, that's discoverable. And, you know, for Plato, uh, it is kind of carved in the nature of the universe. And a part of our task as human beings is to figure out what that is, right? And it's challenging and difficult. Uh, the, the allegory of the cave uh, basically is the allegory that says that, it's gonna, that, that the actual true nature of the universe, the three-dimensional, full, real nature of the universe, is inaccessible to us. The truth, the conception of the good in its purest form is inaccessible to us. All we see are shadows of it. But that doesn't mean that it isn't there. And in fact, just because we only see shadows, and those shadows look ephemeral, and those shadows are shifting and hard to discern what they are because they are only two-dimensional monochromatic uh, versions of what is a three-dimensional full-color truth, uh, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's going to be challenging to, to get to it, but part of our job is to orient ourselves around what those capital G, uh, capital T truths are, one of which would be the conception of good. And for a lot of Greeks, the, the idea of virtue, and virtue has a variety of different meanings, but virtue is the true good, and, and what it means to live a good life, to live a right life, for, for many ancient Greek philosophers, uh, including Plato, is to seek, uh, to, to cultivate your individual virtue and to set up a world so that virtue can be uh, more easily cultivated and is going to be much more widely spread. Um, liberalism is a rejection of that sort of singular conception of the good type of philosophizing. At the same time, it falls into the trap of, uh, you know, advancing a pure normative standpoint that itself rejects the notion of a singular conception of the good. Uh, so it is a pure normative standpoint that rejects the overall notion of pure normative standpoints for all individuals. Uh, there's a similar kind of problem that liberalism uh, raises, and this is maybe the more familiar version of, of it, which is how do, how do liberals handle the, the problem of tolerating the intolerant? Toleration is clearly a central virtue in a liberal society, tolerating other people's ways of life, uh, tolerating uh, different conceptions of the good, tolerating different choices when they don't affect other people, right? So you don't have to tolerate the harmful, um, but what about tolerating the intolerant, right? Obviously, if intolerant people go around murdering, there's an easy liberal answer for how to deal with that. You, 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 you uh, criminalize and punish uh, that harmful behavior. The harm principle answers that. But what if intolerant people are simply not tolerating others and they are uh, saying that other people's ways of life are wrong and they're advocating for rejecting those and they're not crossing that harm principle boundary but they actually are not accepting the, pr the premise of a liberal society which is that, you know, essentially in a, in a you know, rock song and bumper sticker version, live and let live, right? That's what tolerance is. How do you address in a society where tolerance is supposed to be a central value? It stems from this pure normative standpoint. In fact, it might even be said to be a key component of the pure normative standpoint. Tolerance. What happens when you run into intolerant people? There's no really good answer. It's, it is, in fact, to tolerating the intolerant 
is clearly a paradoxical statement. It's, it's, it's more bare, it, it, it lays bare uh, more centrally just what kind of paradox there is at the center of liberalism. But in a, in a very related version, there's a reliance on this, and then there's a rejection of the very notion that the uh, philosophy is relying on. Now, this doesn't mean that liberalism is a kind of a, a, an empty, uh, contradictory, uh, um, hypocritical style of thinking. I think that almost every political perspective, almost any metaphysical perspective uh, uh, on the universe is going to, at some point, run into a really problematic paradox or conflict, and that is not an argument that it's wrong. It's just, I think, an, uh, 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 an insight that there really is, to us humans at least, there really is no way that we can construct a perspective on the world that isn't in some way, uh, doesn't have some kind of tension built into it. But that's actually maybe the, the nature of the human condition. That's one of our limitations uh, as, uh, as beings that we are. Right? Um, I think of, I often think of, when I think of the tolerating the intolerant paradox, I also then quickly think of, for whatever reason, quirk of my thought, I think about, um, can God create a boulder that he can't lift? Uh, that's, you know, that, that is a paradox that's often used as, I think, an attack on the idea of uh, omnipotence. Uh, can an omnipotent being do something that that omnipotent being, or create something that that omnipotent being is, isn't powerful enough to, to do? Can God create a rock that he can't lift? Uh, that's not an argument that there's no God. Uh, and that's not an argument that the entire perspective that the universe is shaped by this divine intentionality uh, and infused with divine power and divine spirit. It's, it, it doesn't, to me, to some people I think it would, but to me it doesn't knock down that whole idea. It just points out that when you construct a sufficiently comprehensive doctrine about the nature of the universe or the nature of human existence or the nature of human society or the relation between individuals and society that you're going to run into at some point, what looks like a logical contradiction. Uh, and that that's partly because human beings have the capacity to keep asking questions, to keep asking questions, to come up with uh, all kinds of uh, reasons why we might want to reject what otherwise has a ton of solid uh, evidence supporting it, or at least it has a ton of, of really, really solid uh, um, assumptions behind it, right? Like, you know, I don't believe in God, and I don't believe that there's a divine uh, power that is kind of shaping the universe, though I sometimes believe that the universe is infused with what we would call a divine spirit, but I don't believe in God. Um, yet I do recognize that the idea that there must be something behind all this, right? It, how does all this exist? How, how, does, how does the universe even exist? How is there this order that I look around me and I see all kinds of crazy diversity and, and entropy, but I also see uh, just the most unlikely order? It's totally reasonable to say, where did this come from? And to answer that by saying it must have come from some kind of divine hand, divine plan. Um, and that makes sense. And then when you start putting that together into a comprehensive uh, metaphysical view, you, if you're being, uh, I would say, uh, rigorous and honest enough, you're going to run into the can God create a boulder that he can't lift problem at some point in, in that pathway. Liberalism runs into it right here. And, and the author of our reading, I think, does a pretty good job of indicating that the pure, the, the pure normative standpoint, which liberalism seems to be trying to escape, is in fact something that it also relies on. 
and all that stuff about how like you know liberals of the 19th century totally rejected Kant and his a priori notion that there is some kind of uh, fundamental uh, normative standpoint built into our uh, our brains that was rejected by liberals because of that problem because of this but that it was embraced uh, at least partly by uh, Kant and by 20th century liberals uh, I think because there was this felt need to put the notion that liberty is the primary value onto a firmer footing uh, and when you answer the question or excuse me when you ask the question why should liberty be the primary value in the starting point? How do you answer that? You know, it, liberals can either say, well, we're not going to answer it. It just, it just is. You just have to accept it. This is the presumption, and it's built into the human heart, this striving for uh, liberty and this yearning to uh, rule ourselves, right? It's like, well, but we also have all kinds of other things that are built into our hearts, the strivings and impulses that other political perspectives grab onto and build on. It's not as though other political perspectives take stuff that's outside of us and run with it, and that liberalism is looking into us uh, inside the human condition for the first time. It's not. Every philosophy, every political perspective is based to some extent or another on observations about what is true about human nature or what's true about the human condition that's selected out from the giant list of, of things that are. Um, for, I'll give one, one example that's coming up, in, uh, and it's one of my favorite ones. Uh, fascism is in some way based on the undeniable claim about the human condition that we are mortal and essentially our lives, given the grand scope of things, are really very uh, insignificant. They're just, it's, just, it's just a soap bubble in a vast universe that floats for a little while and then explodes. And that's, the, that's true about the human condition, right? And uh, fascism takes that and a couple of other things out of the human condition and human nature and puts it at the center place. So every political theory, every political perspective, every metaphysics, every, every way of looking at the world takes some feature of the human condition or human nature or some combination of those two and puts it in first place and or the starting point uh, or center, however, whatever kind of spatial metaphor uh, is you want to use. Liberalism runs into this problem. Now, that means that liberalism is open to criticism from at least one direction, right? Uh, and we're going to see throughout the rest of the term numerous directions that liberalism is criticized from. And one thing I want us to pay attention to as we're moving through it is, to what extent do these criticisms of liberalism fall prey to the very style of uh, attack that they are bringing to bear on liberalism itself, right? So uh, in what way are the problematic features of liberalism that are being exploited to criticize it in what way does, does that sort of blow back on the critic themselves? But I'm going to leave that sort of for the ensuing uh, lectures, and we're going to talk about uh, Rousseau uh, on uh, Thursday. It's actually, I'm not going to talk about Rousseau on Thursday, and probably today's Monday. I'm probably going to do that lecture tomorrow, I'm trying to give myself a long weekend. This weekend has been, uh, I will confess, the road instruction has been a little more hectic than I anticipated. I thought, oh, I don't have to drive anywhere, I don't have to be in class at a particular time, I'll just set up my iPhone in my dining room with my chalkboard. Uh, and I'll just lecture away and it'll just be blissful. It's actually, it's, it's turned out, I'm not complaining, uh, but I'm just saying it's turned out to be a little more challenging than I uh, thought it would be in terms of time management and stress management and, and sort of making sure that, it, that I do it the way that I, that, that I want to do it, but also at the same time that I can relax and enjoy uh, what quarantine offers to me in terms of the social world that I have of three people living in my household. Uh, 
So uh, just a little digression. I don't really talk too much about uh, um, the difficulties of this because for the most part, it's actually super fun to do this. Um, but I'm going to move on from this and I'm going to step away and sort of allow the camera to take a picture of this and then I'm going to erase. Because I want to talk about the values that could easily be seen to compete with liberty. And they're not necessarily diametrically opposed, right? We're, um, we're not going to look at, you know, slavery or, uh, you know, total social uh, um, uh, immersion as uh, competing values. There, there will be, when we look at fascism, it moves kind of in that direction of saying, you know, individual liberty really not only doesn't belong at the top, it really kind of is, it, it, it's, it, it pulls us away from the true value. But today I just want to look at, at competing values that all sound really good. And I'm going to write them down, I have them in my notes here. There's community, equality, unity, and inclusion. Now, these are not this is not an exhaustive list of competing values, right? I already talked about one uh, that earlier in the lecture that it's not on the list, virtue. Um, there's also, uh, in the reading for today, justice is discussed, and, and Rawls's book called The Theory of Justice, it's really, I would say, that, that justice is still a secondary concern uh, in Rawls, even though he, he, he constantly talks about it, and even though uh, it's the title of the book. Um, justice, virtue, uh, submission, um, uh, you know, uh, there's, there are various kinds of values that could be put on a list of competing values to liberty. And partly I'm not focusing on all of those because we're not going to get to those, but also I think that um, these values all are kind of liberty adjacent in the sense that to liberals, these notions are not uh, oppositional notions. These, these values are not things that liberalism is fighting against. All of these, to a certain extent, are good things within the liberal view. They're just not, when push comes to shove, they're not going to be the ones that win out. But why not, right? Uh, the notion of community is a really important one, and I, I should note before I get going, I should note that the, the idea of liberty, right, the word liberty, has a lot of different meanings, and I've already talked about a variety of different ways of interpreting that, that term, <clears throat> um, and I've kind of settled on individual sovereignty as, as the, most, uh, the, the best way to elaborate what it means, and also indicated that there's this built-in tension between positive and negative liberty uh, that makes the term liberty problematic and diverse and complex. All of these values are problematic and diverse and complex as well. And that's actually, I think, one of the hallmarks of a value proposition or a value term is that it, it's going to be a proposition that is itself diverse, complex, potentially internally contradictory. It's going gonna, it's gonna to create uh, um, uh, di uh, uh, divisions and conflict among adherents to it. Uh, so all of these have that same nature, right? Like equality. What is equality, right? It's a good thing. Like who could not think equality is a good thing? But what kind of equality? Where, which, which idea of how people are equal are we going to say is the, 
proper one to operationalize this is the, is the one that when we have conflicts between, say, equal opportunity and equal resources, which one is going to win out, right? Um, equality is, to me, I don't have it first on the list, but it, to me it is the most liberty adjacent because liberal societies are committed to particular types of equality. Equality is actually a helper value within the liberal discourse. Um, there's legal equality and there's political equality and uh, the notion of equality of opportunity is for most liberals also built in uh, to it. The notion that we are all have an equal right to be sovereign individuals, um, that there's this fundamental uh, 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 just kind of metaphysical equality to us that we all have the same uh, right, but then political equality, making sure that everybody has the same power, all of those things. Equality is clearly a very important value within liberty, um, and it's also problematic and complex, because what equality is the right and best one? And then how do we manifest that value in the world? Uh, how do we make sure that once we've committed to a particular version of what equality means, that we actually get it? So for example, legal equality. Um, some people would say, well, legal equality is just that's actually a problematic version of equality because that, that's just a process and equality is a result-oriented uh, value. So part one of the questions is, is it a process or a result? Legal equality is clearly a process uh, orientation. There's a conflict always between process and result. If we treat people uh, equally in the eyes of the law, we are going to have to treat them differently in action and in result. Uh, and it's th that, that much is obvious, right? You can't, a legal system is built on distinctions. Uh, the simplest distinction is between somebody who does and doesn't break a particular law. Right? Let's take the simplest, most uncontroversial law. Uh, um, you don't get to kill other people. You don't get to murder them uh, just because you want to. Uh, if somebody does that and somebody else doesn't do that, we can't treat those two people the same. That would not be legal equality. If we treated both of those people the same, that would actually be legal inequality because uh, the, the, the law is not being applied to both of those people in the same way. So applying the law to two people in the same way means that we're going to get result distinctions. And in the case of murder, that's really simple, right? We know, okay, here's, here's a relatively uncontroversial law and somebody did or didn't break it. And, you know, of course, the question is, well, what if somebody says that, that, that they didn't do the murdering? Then we have to have a process that is uh, fair and provides opportunity for that person to, to, to uh, have their innocence demonstrated. And how do you do all that? Innumerable questions institutionally for how you actually get legal equality. But when we then also have, uh, you know, laws that are more subtle and more complex and potentially more controversial, we're going to the question of, well, how do we treat people the same when treating them the same is going to result in treating them differently? So there's right there, there's, there's a paradox. Equality can't mean sameness. But as soon as, you as soon as you sort of acknowledge that, well, equality is not equivalent to sameness, we can't just treat everybody the same and then we're treating them equally, um, then the question is, well, what kind of differences are acceptable to the value of equality. And that is highly problematic 
Um, and uh, even if you say, if you say, okay, what what equality is the version of equality that we have that we that that makes the most sense to us is an equality of result, right? That what we want, and this is just one of innumerable versions, that what we want from equality is a result of roughly equal economic resources. And there's a, we can, we can build this on a conception of uh, the human condition and on, the, uh, on human nature. And the conception of the human condition is this, is that uh, we are good-seeking beings. That's what we do, right? We are seeking our own good, and we are uh, separate from uh, other individuals. And notice that there's a very, that, that, that there's a, a, you know, a lot of the same concepts and ideas from liberalism are, are entering here. We are separate from other individuals. We're, pursue, we're pursuing our, uh, our, our own good, um, and in a way, that's kind of what we're programmed to do. That's the kind of beings that we are. And because of our uh, existence on Earth, because our good relies on um, positive outcomes for us, and positive outcomes uh, bring us resources, economic resources are fundamental to our struggle with just with the universe, much less with other people, to our struggle to advance our good. And since nobody's good is more important than anybody else's good, then uh, there's no reason why someone should get more economic resources than somebody else. Because if somebody gets more economic resources than somebody else, that's a judgment that the conception of the good that they're pursuing is superior to the conception of good that someone else is pursuing. So you could have an idea that equality means an equal amount, roughly equal, it doesn't have to be perfectly equal, right? Equality doesn't actually have to mean exactly the same, but a roughly equal out, uh, um, outcome where we have economic resources are distributed very evenly. Why? Well, that's a recognition, an acknowledgement, and an acceptance of, one, human beings' fundamental equality. Nobody's more important than anybody else. And two, uh, a lack of judgment about um, the different conceptions of the good so that you can say, well, people who strive to be innovative and people who uh, strive to be uh, entrepreneurial and people who strive to uh, you know, uh, raise up the standard of living, those people are more valuable. That conception of the good is more valuable than other people's conceptions of the good. So if they end up getting more economic resources, that's fine because the greater level of economic resources that that person or that group of people possesses just expresses the fact that the good that they're promoting is a superior good to, say, spiritual unity uh, with uh, all beings in the universe, right? Or is superior to the conception of the good that uh, happiness is what really matters. Um, or the conception of the good that our job here on Earth is not to pursue our own individual good, but to connect with and serve others, right? This is These are just... I'm listing you know, a similar set of conceptions of the good that I've talked about in the past. If we're going to avoid making a judgment about which of those conceptions of the good is superior, if we're going to avoid the pure normative standpoint, if we're going to actually accept one of the uh, ideas that underpins uh, liberalism, that we can't say that one conception of the good is better than another one, that notion also fits in with and serves this particular version of equality. Uh, and we could call this, you know, it's probably better to just say it's material equality. 
Um, and material equality is not just because people, you know, are they they all uh, deserve equal amount of stuff because uh, you know uh, our efforts. Some people are more energetic, but they were just born with more energy. They don't deserve it. That's one argument for it. But this this argument that I presented for uh, equality of result of economic resources is based on a rejection of any kind of judgment about what conception of the good is superior. So as I say, this is very much liberalism, liberty-adjacent notion of equality. Other versions of equality, process equality, here we have uh, economic opportunities is a different version. And it also expresses a process orientation towards the same concept. We don't want to say, well, some people deserve more opportunities than others because they're inherently better than other people, right? Um, white men are better than everybody else, therefore they deserve all the opportunities, right? Like, history has made that judgment, and white men have, you know, uh, succeeded in largely in the struggle of making sure that that proposition is followed through in reality, but theoretically, that proposition is, is, is problematic. Uh, and again, why? What, what privileges white men? And, and this is the thing, lots of arguments, specific arguments uh, in the past have been made to say, well, men are superior to women and white people are superior to non-white people uh, that would justify distributing opportunities unequally, right? So inequality is actually a competing value uh, with liberty as well. We want to organize our society in a way that actually distributes opportunities unequally. That the inequality is uh, not on this board, but it is, it is technically a competing value uh, that, that we can talk about. But even, like, equality is a liberty-adjacent value. And it, yet also, if we're going to say, well, liberty is important, and rejecting the pure normative standpoint that there's one best conception of the good or some small set of conceptions of the good that are the right ones and all the other ones are, are wrong, uh, we're still going to run into conflicts. Equality and liberty are not going to be able to get along all the time, particularly if we take a result-oriented version of what equality is. And why process versus result? In a, in a way, why, why is equality of opportunity, which I would say to the, to the dominant American culture, equality of economic resources, that's, that's socialism, that sounds crazy. That's like, how could we do that? Equality of opportunity is the right interpretation of equality. Legal equality, political equality, equality of opportunity, the, these are all the right forms. Now, those versions of equality are going to dovetail with liberty way more than any version of equality of result. And economic resources is only the one, it's the, it's the dominant uh, version of equality of results. Um, but we could also talk about equality of uh, position, uh, we can say that you know, in, in the ideal society is one in which everybody occupies all of the different social roles at some point or another, that we all equally contribute to the energy and jobs, as opposed to equality of opportunity and openness and, and a merit, meritocratic competition where uh, people all have equal chance, but they don't all end up with an equal uh, share of uh, social burden and social struggle and social benefits, right? So there are other ways besides just saying equality of uh, material or economic resources is the way to interpret result. But equality itself is going to divide adherence of equality. This strain, as I say, is going to mesh much more nicely with uh, liberty. Though there is still going to be 
a conflict. And I'll just give one example before moving on to talking about community. And the conflict is this, is that if people pursuing their conception of the good and being allowed to do so um, make choices that create opportunities for certain people and, and uh, undercut opportunities for other people, can we force those people to, to redistribute the way they're producing opportunities, the way they're granting opportunities, so that they actually adhere to uh, e uh, equal opportunity? If we're, if we're going to say, well, liberty, when there's a conflict, liberty is the, pri is, is the primary value, we're going to say, well, if we can't have equal opportunity and individual sovereignty both in an example, then we're going to have to let individual sovereignty choose, uh, reign. This is this is is also kind of one answer to tolerating the intolerant. It's, it, it is just I would say another variant of that. I'm an intolerant person. I run a business, and I don't like people who don't look like me, and I don't hire people who don't look like me. Um, that is how I choose to live my life. My conception of the good, right? And you can't tell me it's wrong. My conception of the good is that uh, the that I represent my way of life, my gender, my uh, culture, my race, represent the, like, the right way to go about human life. And people who aren't like me, who don't look like me, aren't going to serve that, so I'm not going to hire them. I'm not going to uh, use my economic resources to provide equal opportunity for everybody. Do I get forced? So essentially, I'm the intolerant, right? Do I get forced by a tolerant society into being tolerant and say, well, you know, great, you can have your conception of the good, but you can't act on it in a way that harms other people because you're harming these people. And I said, no, I'm not harming them. I'm just not giving them something. So notice that what's happening here is that we're going to have a dispute in a liberal society about whether the harm principle line belongs uh, uh, protecting me or whether it belongs condemning me. Because if we can say, well, you know, by not providing economic opportunities to people who don't look like you, um, that you're actually harming them, and the harm principle means that society gets to force you to do things that you, uh, to force, it gets to f prevent you from, use force to prevent you from doing things that harm other people. So we're going to force you to have uh, an equal, to provide equal opportunities for all people no matter what they look like if you have uh, a job available to somebody. And I'll say that, I'm not harming anybody, right? There, I am pursuing my own conception of the good, and that does, I will admit, that curtails opportunities for other people. In fact, if you're going to let me pursue my conception of the good and not tell me that it's wrong, you have to let me impact other people. If you force me to provide equal opportunity and to open the jobs that I have available through my enterprise to people who don't look like me, you're essentially telling me that my conception of the good is wrong, and you can force me to abandon it. Um, and you'll say, well, no, we don't, we're not forcing you to abandon your conception of the good. We're just forcing you not to harm other people. But from my perspective, like, you're essentially saying that the, one of the primary activities that will advance my conception of the good is unavailable to me, which, in my opinion, essentially tells me that my conception of the good is unavailable to me. And even though you're not going to call it wrong, that's just, you're just using soft language. You're, through your actions, you're actually making it wrong. Which one gives, right? For a person who believes in equality above liberty, and it could just be that it's one tiny notch above, that conflict is going to be solved by saying, oh yeah, we're not going to tolerate the intolerant, it, especially when it undermines equal opportunity. Um, that that conflict will be resolved where we, we as a society are perfectly uh, comfortable 
forcing that person to uh, treat all applicants for jobs equally. Um, in a society that's dedicated to liberty and also equality, but liberty is going to win out, we're going to say, oh yeah, that's, I, I hate to do this. We hate to do this because we're essentially tolerating the intolerant. But if we don't tolerate the intolerant, we are then ourselves being intolerant and undermining their conception of the good. Liberty has to win out, even though the cost is going to be a diminishment in economic or equality of opportunity. Um, so you can see how just that one difference between which of these two, equality or liberty, which one is going to ultimately, when push comes to shove, in the hardest of the hard cases, and these hard cases won't necessarily show up all the time, but they will show up. When we have these hard cases, what do we look to decide? Or excuse me, which value do we look to decide uh, which direction to go? And that is going to come down to your normative stance. And uh, again, here, Equality is, if you're an adherent of equality, and if you're out there saying, yeah, equality over liberty, like I, I, a liberty-loving society is great, but liberty is, should lose when it runs up against equality. Uh, and actually, that's one of the things that makes the, for the difference between um, a very tolerant liberal, who's maybe you know, pretty far left, um, and a, uh, what might now be called like a progressive, and the, the, the terms have changed, but uh, like a socialist liberal or a social democrat, is that those people are going to say, no, you know, liberty is important. That's why I'm a liberal. That's why I'm over here on the left side of the political spectrum. But equality is more important than liberty. So uh, that, that will be one of the distinguishing factors between people on the left who hold uh, very similar views in a lot of policy issues, but who uh, actually have different value orientations. Equality may, to some of you listening, and I'm sure it does, make more sense as the primary value than liberty. Um, because equality expresses, here's the underlying argument for it, equality expresses a fundamental truth about us, which is that nobody is more important than anybody else. Now, you, of somebody who rejects equality and maybe even rejects liberty as primary values uh, could come back with the, with the uh the, the counter proposition, which is that is incorrect. Some people do matter more than other people. Um, and inequality is built into the nature. I mean, look at the world, right? D do we have a bunch of people who are s the same or even similar in their capacities, their ideas, their act? No. Inequality is built into the nature of the universe. If you, if, even if you don't think about humans, there's inequality all over nature, right? Um, and whether that was created by God or whether it was created by uh, an evolutionary process of natural selection, there's tons of inequality in nature. Uh, and th there's no reason why we should ignore that. But, so you can see that inequality could go up here as a competing value. But even just sticking with equality, the, presumption, or the, the, the presupposition is that no one it matters more than anybody else. And what that means is that nobody's conception of the good can be elevated over anybody else's. And providing, and again, there's here we can take one of two paths, providing equal economic resources so that everybody has the same ability to pursue their conception of the good, or at least providing economic equal opportunities so everybody has the chance to pursue them. And some people are going to succeed and some people aren't because opportunities don't lead to results, right? If opportunities are out there, some people will be able to take advantage of those opportunities, 
other people will not, right? Like, let's say that I'm equal, you know, I'm equal in my hiring practices and I hire somebody and they fail at the job because my assessment that they would be able to carry out the necessary tasks was wrong um, and they get fired, right? That person has had an opportunity, but the result is that it's pretty much the same as if they didn't have the opportunity at all. They're not, they're not getting that money anymore, so they're now gonna have to look for other ways to pursue their conception of the good. And they might be thwarted, right? If everybody in the world was seeking happiness as their conception of the good, some people would end up being more happy than others. So in, unequal results are going to kind of be natural. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to correct them. Right? That's part of, part of what equality result is saying is that these outcome differences are, while they're natural, they're arbitrary. And we, as human beings, should try to correct for them. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take pretty vigorous action to take the inequality that is strewn all about the, the world, that some of which is just you know, in nature, like there's inequality there, and some, much of which is actually amplified by culture and, and economic systems and political systems, but we're gonna take that and we're going to try as best as possible to nullify that as a way of acknowledging that nobody's more important, nobody's better, nobody's more valuable than anybody else. Um, <clears throat> okay. We'll, we'll run into equality again as, uh, a, a, as a value when we start looking at, this, at some of the specific critics of, uh, of liberalism. Community, right? Community is one of those words that it's, it sounds really good, but then it's like, well, what does it mean? And also, how does it relate to liberty? How does it, what, what place do individual differences have? Uh, how powerful is community? Community, though, is very important because uh, even if we're living in a liberty-loving society where we acknowledge that individual sovereignty and individualism are central values, individuals can really not have any sense of self. There's no sense of idea, uh, of identity. There's uh, no sense of, of self-worth or there's not a full sense of self-worth without some kind of supporting community. Right? No person is an island. Liberals have to acknowledge that no person is an island, um, and what that means is, because it, it's acknowledging reality, and it's also acknowledging the fact that societal influences, family, peers, professional colleagues, uh, relationships, all of these things, which are you know, specific versions of what community are, are essential to us. Right? Uh, you might not need other people to validate you in order to have self-worth, right? Like, in fact, it's probably a good idea not to rely on other people's good opinions of you to feel good about yourself. But if you're going to feel good about yourself, how, how are you even going to develop ideas about what it means to feel good about yourself without uh, a world around you, without a community to support you? How are you even going to um, do things and uh, that you could feel good about on your own terms, even if other people don't necessarily validate you, if there aren't other people to do things around, uh, and there aren't other people to do things with, and other people to get ideas from, and, and feedback, and you know, even if people don't like your ideas, or like the way you're living your life, they can still be seen as part of your community, because it's important to have a real conception of, well, why am I worth anything, um, to have both positive and negative feedback, to give you the ability to evaluate. Somebody hates my work, I wrote a book, and somebody reads it and they hate it. And uh, that doesn't mean I have to be like, oh, it's a worthless book. And I also, but I also am not gonna just say, well, fuck you. Uh, it's, 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 I think it's worthwhile and you're just wrong. It's like, it's useful to say, okay, this person doesn't like it and why? And okay, it's just a different taste or it is like, you know, th this kind of book doesn't work for them. And by 
essentially enmeshing myself in the full community of opinion, in this case, it might not be uh, that a community of opinion is one version of what a community is, I can get a, a greater and fuller and more, uh, I would say, valuable sense of self-worth than if uh, I had no feedback or if just everybody just said what I wanted to hear, which is, oh, we love the book, it was great. Uh, that doesn't really support your self-worth necessarily either. So community is essential. Community is also an essential support for us pursuing our conceptions of the good, right? Not, not only is no person on an island in the sense that they develop their own ideas and values and conceptions of the good isolated from everybody else. Obviously we don't, but we do not pursue successfully our conceptions of the good without some kind of community support. Uh, and I think that, you know, one of, one of the things that is interesting about this coronavirus lockdown period is that uh, so many features of what our regular, everyday, unreflective experience of life is have been taken away from us. And communities that we're, we may not even be aware that we're part of a community have been removed from our lives. And it highlights either how important those communities are to us or how restrictive those communities are to us. Uh, I think both of those reactions, and sometimes both of those reactions at once, but both of those reactions happen. Um, <clears throat> if, you're, if you're quarantined only with your family, and I am, I have, I'm, I'm with my kids and my wife, and while I you know, go to the store and, and we can call other people and, and email and all this stuff, our, you know, our community has been narrowed, all four of us, to the three other people. I can see more clearly than normal in a busy life where I'm part of 10 different communities uh, that uh, what this community does and doesn't do for me, how important it really is to my sense of uh, worth, to my sense of pride, to uh, my sense of like how I can, uh, that I'm actually pursuing partly my conception of the good is supporting other people, right? Like I didn't really notice how, how much being a good community member uh, in this small community, how important that has been to me. I've seen that. Um, I'm denied access to other communities, right? My, uh, my coworkers, my uh, colleagues in the political science department and in the College of Urban and Public Affairs uh, and the broader PSU community are essentially denied to me. Um, we've had a couple of virtual meetings and of course there's tons and tons of email, but that community is more or less denied to me. And it's easier now to see just what that community gives to me and takes from me because it's been denied to me. So I think that we are actually living in a time where community, whether we elevate it to the top value or not, we, we're, we're getting a chance to see by either forced exclusion from many of the communities that we're used to being part of and then kind of forced uh, participation at a heightened level of intensity in certain smaller communities. And maybe you're not quarantined with your family, maybe you're quarantined with uh, your, your housemates. Um, and so that community, which you, know, you might think, well, my family's the real community I live in, uh, and my housemates are just people that I live with. It's like, well, th that's actually a community, whether you would call it that or not. And so partly community is everywhere, and it's, it is both uh, a necessary support to us it, it, sometimes it's just necessary support materially, and sometimes it's necessary support psychologically, sometimes it's emotionally, sometimes it's intellectually. Uh, you know, as, I've, as I said uh, about conceptions of the good, we can't possibly 
choose a conception of the good for ourselves in any philosophically meaningful way unless we have alternatives. And where do we get alternative conceptions of the good? Where do we get to, see, to get the idea for them and get to see examples of them being lived out and get to hear arguments for them and arguments against them if it weren't for other people? And this is one of the ways in which community is, even if those, the community doesn't provide us with material support for advancing our own conception of the good, it's out there. Now, uh, and it's supporting us in, in some particular way. Also, community clearly is a constraint. Now, from the liberal point of view, the supporting role of community is nice, but the constraining potential of community is problematic. And so, uh, because liberty is elevated to the primary value, when individualism runs into community, community is supposed to take a backseat. Uh, parents are supposed to roll back their support for as well as their authority over children as children come to be fully independent uh, uh, beings exercising their full 100% individual uh, sovereignty. That's the liberal version of what parenting is with a capital L, right? Um, so that your, your kids are, you're, tr you're, you're preparing them to become fully individually sovereign. And the community support that you provide for them uh, throughout their childhood, which is really important for them to develop the ability to be that way, has to, has to move away, has to diminish, and ultimately uh, you have to kind of let go of it. That's not the only way to envision the relationship between parents and children, right? Uh, other cultures, and even subcultures within the American culture, the dominant American culture is the li that liberal version, which is, you know, you grow up and at 18 you move out and you don't move back, and if you move back and you live in your parents' basement, it's because you're pathetic uh, and you're a loser. Uh, sorry for anybody who's watching this from their parents' basement. Um, you're not a loser in this particular time. But broadly, that's the expectation. There, within, our, within the United States, but it's sort of, I would say, marginal, uh, much more marginal, but in other countries, for sure, the notion that parents' job is to be preparing sovereign individuals to leave the house at some age, set age, 18, 21, whatever it happens to be, and then the relationship between parents and children uh, transforms to one of authority uh, and control and support and dependence to one of essentially equal, uh, independent, uh, individually sovereign beings relating to each other. That notion, by a lot of cultures, is totally rejected as the proper model, that the community model is the right one. A family is a, is a lifetime community. And that the support and the constraint that comes with a community is, is an important part of what community is. So community has both support and constraint. And for communitarians, both of those aspects of it are actually valuable. Right? Uh, before I move on from that, I just want, I want to tell a story of when I lived in Azerbaijan. Since I'm talking about other cultures... Azerbaijan uh, is a, um, it's a, it's a Muslim country, but it's, I would consider it to be secularly Muslim in the same sense that the United States is secularly Christian, where, uh, you know, like, m most people are, identify as, uh, as Muslim, but Islam is not, it doesn't give a primary uh, uh, sort of orientation towards the, towards what the culture is like. Um, just like Christianity is certainly ambient in our culture, but our culture is, is more than just Christianity. Anyway, in Azerbaijan, um, the uh, people do not, see, young people do not seek to leave the parental home or become essentially separate individuals from their parents at whatever young adulthood period, age 18 to 22, that is kind of common in our culture. Um, and I remember uh, meeting this couple, 
super westernized couple, spoke great English, uh, were really oriented towards capitalist uh, 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 striving, but they were just married and had a baby and they lived with the wife's parents. They moved in with the wife's parents and uh, I would just uh, automatically thought, well, okay, that's good, right? Uh, because you need the support and you're young and you're just getting started and uh, you're, you know, but you're working towards getting your own place so you can move out of your parents' uh, uh, apartment and have your own place. And they just, they looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, why would we want to do that? We love our parents. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, it's interesting because in America, we, can, we love our parents too. And the reason we move out is because we love them. <laughs> and the reason why our parents want us to move out is because they love us. They're not kicking us out because they're sick of supporting us. But that may be true in certain cases. But, uh, and we're not leaving because we don't love our parents. We're leaving because it's the natural progression in our culture of how the family model is supposed to go. That family community essentially dissolves into a different type of relationship, one that is, that is much more separate. And to them, that just seemed like madness. It was a betrayal of what the family was. And, they, and, and then they were like, don't American kids love their parents? I'm like, no, on the contrary, they do. That's, they leave so they don't kill each other. That's, that's, that's our form of love. But it was for sure the first time that I had really seen what I would consider to be a fully different model of what the family could mean to people, not just how they acted. Like I always, I knew people who lived with their parents past age 22, and I knew that the families that tried to stay tight knit, and they were they were multi generational households. But because that occurred within the broad American context of the sort of the dominant culture of, you know, what parenting is and what childhood is, is growing out of that dependent relationship. It always was an anomaly, or was only was only partial. Here were people who were fully embracing a completely different notion of what the family meant as a community. And they were putting, not, not explicitly, it just happened, uh, but they were putting community above liberty, right? They, they were not saying, well, our job as beings is to develop our capacity for individual sovereignty, to develop our rational capacity so that we can conceive, come up with our own conception of the good and act on it. That was not part of it. Our role as human beings is to be good members of this family, to be connected to and tight-knit with uh, this, this community that is a natural community. And while family is not what everybody means when they talk about community, it's definitely a, a really strong model for communitarians of all kinds. Now, families can be problematic and dysfunctional, and so that's one of the reasons why they're not always the model for community or the ideal form of community for uh, people who put community at the top. But you can see how powerful that notion is that we are nothing without the people that raise us and that we grew up with, that, we, that we're genetically connected with, and that we're culturally connected with, and that we have a history together, that we are, that we, we are nothing without them, and that we shouldn't be seeking this liberal path, which is to, to grow away from them and to strengthen our own uh, capacity to essentially run our own lives separately from them. Um, that is not a liberal notion. It's a, that's a communitarian notion, and it's, it is very powerful. And it's interesting because as I, whenever I talk about this now, especially my, my kids are teenagers, they're 14 and 16 years old, they, I'm stupendously aware of how short timer we are as, a, as, as this 
household. And this, this quarantine time is, is kind of like, I actually am very grateful for how, how where it's coming in, in, in the development of, of my kid's life um, because I'm getting all this special time and I'm really, we're all four of us getting to know like what does super drive us crazy about each other, but also like how, how, how that's so tiny compared to the ways in which we all love each other so much and, 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 and we're connected. Yet, I'm also like fearing the transition to you know, grown kids. Not because I don't want that for them. I do, I, I fully adhere to the sort of liberal model of parenting and that, that our job as parents is to help support people so that they can be the best, most capable, uh, least um, screwed up versions of sovereign individuals that they possibly can as early as possible. Uh, and that my authority uh, over them will wind down to the point where at a certain point I am maybe a trusted advisor, hopefully a trusted advisor, but in no way an authority figure anymore at, with, with control over what, what people do. Um, so, uh, but I see like that's going to involve the dissolution of this community. That is, and right now I'm getting an even more powerful sense of just how valuable this community is. Um, I've also, the same, at the same time, because of this uh, um, separation, I have realized the value of communities that I always thought were mostly constraint and not support. Uh, and at the risk of my colleagues seeing this, I will say that that's largely how I've related to the community of my professional colleagues. And you know, being a college professor is kind of, it's, it's a pretty solitary endeavor, right? There's occasionally you team teach and you do have faculty meetings and you have to make collective decisions and you have to be on committees. All that is part of the job, but that's pretty peripheral to the main activity, which is this, right? Solo teaching and solo research. Um, the, so it's very easy to think of co professional colleagues as not community members, but merely as coworkers. I, I now realize even more so, I'm like, oh, yeah, other other you know colleagues, this community can be a constraint because I have to I have to do the community things, I have to go to the faculty meetings, I have to work on committees. Um, uh, but what I'm seeing more is what I get from that. I have, in the past, I really didn't see what supports I was getting from that. The ideas, the intellectual atmosphere. Uh, you, you know, even when people have deep disagreements about ideas, like the intellectual sparring, you know, none of that is, I can't have the same kind of conversations. All the people that I live with in this household are very smart, very well-informed people, but I, they're not professional academic political scientists, and so I can't have the same discussions with them that I have with my colleagues. And a big part of what my identity is, is this role. And the community of my uh, um, colleagues, who aren't just coworkers or people who are employed by the same institution, but are actually part of this intellectual and even in a way, I don't want to get too woo-woo about it, but spiritual community, I'm seeing, since I'm separated from them, how, uh, how powerful that is. Uh, one concrete example, I've gone into my office three times now, and I'm gonna, I think I'm going to try to go once a week just to have that experience. It's really interesting to go on the PSU campus and see what a weird ghost town it is. And I enter the building with my, uh, with my faculty pass, and it clicks the, uh, the green light, and the door opens. I go to my office, there's no one around, I unlock my door. It's, it's blissful in one way, because oh, just, just beautiful solitude, and I love that solitude. But also it's very weird and difficult to get the energy, much like missing your students. I knew that I was gonna miss the students. I knew I was gonna miss this community that you guys out there would be if we were together in a classroom. 
What I didn't think was that I would miss the energy of a full sixth floor of the Urban Center, right? I was in my office for several hours, and I was really increasingly aware of how the silence, which I had found blissful at first, was actually also an absence. There, the energy that I would normally feel all around me, even if I had my, my office door closed, I would, there, was, there would be energy around me. So I, I've, I've been made aware of how important community is. And I think that for adherence of uh, community as the primary value, what they believe liberalism is missing, and this is where we will see this, I think this is coming up next week, uh, communitarianism should be one of the first things we talk about, but maybe it isn't next week, maybe it's the week after, I forget. But the, uh, from the point of view of communitarians, liberalism is kind of a sterile, lonely place, centering the uh, political discourse around separate individuals pursuing their own conceptions of the good um, is a uh, atomizing, alienating, and sterile thing. That's part of the critique. Uh, and not to say that communitarians reject individual liberty, but they just drop it down from the primary place. And part of the reason why they drop it down is it doesn't have that robust uh, uh, support for humans that a community does. So you can see how it is that these values, which are definitely connected to what a liberal society is going to be. A liberal society is one that's going to have many communities. They're voluntary communities, and uh, they, are commu they are communities that don't get the same uh, right that the government has to enforce, to, to, to determine and enforce rules that people can't reject, right? You can come and go in uh, communities uh, in a liberal society. Voluntary associations are a big part of what a liberal society is all about, and those that's, that's what communities are from the liberal point of view. They're voluntary associations that you are free to enter and exit. Um, but the idea, the communitarian idea, is that seeing society that way, seeing yourself as essentially uh, an island with, of course, influences from the outside and reasons to connect with other people, but fundamentally as uh, a sovereign individual, is limiting, it's alienating, it's, 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 in, it's incorrect about the human experience. And so when there are conflicts between the demands of the community and the demands of individual sovereignty, the community should and is going to win out. And it's mostly not just that in these conflict areas, but that we as persons, I almost said individuals, but really it's we as persons, from the communitarian point of view, should be thinking of ourselves as socially enmeshed, as community members first, and as individuals also, but not primarily. We are community persons, and we are sovereign individuals in the same body, but the community personhood is a higher part of what we are. And that is both a normative and a descriptive claim. It's a descriptive claim in the sense that it's supposed to be descriptive, that that's what human beings are like. We, we are socially enmeshed, we are, uh, we, we are uh, born into a particular context or co culture, our inner monologue has a particular language, we are... We have a family that is influential, peer groups, all these things, communities are natural. We, we gather communities around ourselves. They're, we are part of so many different communities, we don't even call them all communities, right? Like, I, I haven't, wasn't, wouldn't call my colleagues at PSU uh, a community until now, until I've actually been denied that community. I'm like, oh, that actually is a community. To communitarians, we are deeply enmeshed in communities, whether we know it or not, and we should have a more accurate self-conception. We should realize that we're sovereign individuals, sure, and we're separate, our bodies are separate, and our choices are, come from our own, our own free will and not, uh, we're not programmed, we're not social robots, but 
what makes for a meaningful life, what makes for a full conception of our personhood is actually deeply community immersed. All right, I'm just going to, before I finish up, because I don't want to go super long on this one because we're going to explore a lot of these ideas, I just want to note that uh, the ideas of unity, unity is not the same as community, uh, even though, obviously, the word community has unity in it. Unity as a value is stronger than community. Unity as a value is that we as individuals are relatively meaningless unless we are part of a greater whole and that our unity into this whole is the primary value. Now, uh, I'll point that that's really point out that that's really the, the kind of the fundamental uh, presupposition of fascism. And so I'll talk about that. I'll just I'll just say we're going to talk about unity quite a bit when I talk about fascism. Inclusion is also a liber liberty adjacent value in the sense that inclusion is all about the acknowledgement that there's a diverse world and that. To have the right kind of society, to have the right kind of community or the right kind of culture, that, that culture or community or society or political system or economic system should be inclusive of all of the different perspectives and individuals that are out there. Now, this clearly, inclusion clearly takes a stand on the conceptions of the good uh, as well, which is that we, there's no privileged conception of the good. There's no, no, ver, no version of what's the right way to live a life is the one that gets included. All others are excluded and they should feel foreign. And you, you either get out or you change your conception of the good to the, to, to the majority of the dominant conception of the good. Um, inclusion is based on the uh, acknowledgement of a fundamental diversity and of course, diversity is going to be a result of a liberty-loving society. When you're tolerant and you acknowledge that there are multiple conceptions of the good and that you give people room to decide their conception of the good and pursue it, you're going to end up with diversity. Inclusion is a value that sees diversity as natural and that also seeks to make sure that that diversity is built into our society, our political system. And that actually can take, much like creating economic equality of result, that's going to take effort to shape the world that is really predisposed towards inequality to, to generate more equality. Inclusion is also the kind of thing that's going to require active uh, um, changing of the way things happen because human beings are, we have two double tendencies. We are both inclusive, we bring, we bring in, and we're also exclusive. And, and that kind of double move, that contradiction, that, that is related to the, to the stress between individuals and communities or individuals and societies, is that you know, we, we need other people and we want to bring them in, but we also, we also, they, they are a threat to our individual sovereignty, so we repel them. Inclusion is a way of saying we need to be actively making sure that not only is there diversity, but that the diversity that is around us, naturally, it is uh, brought in to the system, whatever the system might be, whether the system be the community or a society or the political system or a workplace uh, or a friend group, that inclusion as an active value, not merely tolerance, right? Because inclusion is different than tolerance. Inclusion is actively making sure that that diversity is represented. Uh, there is a really big difference, and when we get to the end of the course and we talk about inclusion, uh, the, the, uh, a critic of, of liberalism who's coming from the inclusion perspective, you'll see that it, inclusion is more than just tolerance. Okay, well, I think that this has been a pretty good pivot into the second part of the course where we're going to see that liberalism, while it has all these really great ideas, all these really powerful ideas, all these very familiar ideas, and that 
Uh, liberty itself is a great value, but why should it be in the number one position? Why should it win out when there are conflicts? We're going to take very seriously for the rest of the term uh, that question and see what it means to take seriously specific answers to why it shouldn't be the primary value and why it shouldn't win out in conflicts and what kinds of political perspectives and designs of society and designs of political institutions are going to result from these different ways of thinking about the world than the dominant liberal one. Well, until then, until Rousseau, next time, uh, that's it. I hope everybody's doing all right and continues to do all right.